Hello, this is an audio version of a lockdown special live video stream, which you can still find on British Canoeing's YouTube and Facebook channels. Hey, hello everybody. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. Me and my haircut, welcome everybody tonight to the last, the final paddlecast of the season. And it's really great to have you along. And if you're watching again, even greater to have you along. And if you're listening on the podcast, even, even greater to have you along. So thank you so much for being here. It's just going to be a really interesting evening. You know, I hope over the last few weeks and months, we've brought you some interesting stuff. We've brought you some sunshine. We've brought you some thought provocation to your worlds, you know, in this strange time that we've been living through. So and we've got one final episode to bring you tonight. You know, if you've seen the other episodes, if you've been catching up on the podcasts and on, on YouTube and all that, you know, we've gone all different directions. We've talked to paddlers, we've talked to manufacturers, we've talked to all sorts of people, we've talked to the CEOs, we've talked to everybody. And it's been really interesting. We've just comedians, you know, it's been really cool. And tonight the guests we've got on are going to be really interesting. And I think it's going to be really, really fascinating. But I just wanted to, you know, you know, the world has changed, right? You know, in the last few, few weeks, Things have been different. And in fact, right now, I think we're coming to the end of another phase, it seems like. Another phase is starting. We don't really know what awaits us. But, you know, this weekend, the pubs are going to open. And who knows how that's going to turn out in England, at least. So I think, uh, you know, it's fair to say we've got a long way to go. We don't quite know what's going to happen. And I hope the uh, Paddlecast will be back at some point. We'll have to wait and see about that. But I'm really, you know, grateful for everyone who's been along with us this uh, on these last few weeks. I hope it's been okay for you. I'm sure for some of us out there, it's been really, really tough. And, and you know, I'm sorry if it's been hard for you because you know we know that this has been a really rough experience for a lot of people. So I'm really all the more grateful for people for, for being here tonight. So thank you so much. And hey, anyway, as I said, you know, this is our last show. Um, this is the last one for a little while. But of course, um, you know, you can follow us all on the social media. Let us know which bits you like. Download the old episodes and see what's going on. And please keep in contact with British Canoeing. You know, they're always wanting to hear from you lot. So tonight we've got two really interesting people. And, you know, this is one of the cool things about this paddlecast. There's been literally all sorts of people arriving. So the first person we've got on tonight is a former deputy leader of the Labour Party, and now he is a paddler, Mr. Tom Watson. So Tom Watson has been through an amazing journey the last few years. So he entered politics in 2001, which I thought was, you know, quite quite recently, but it's actually, you know, 19 years ago, rising to the deputy leader of the party. And then at 50, and it says he weighs 22 stone, Tom was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. But since then, he's gone on a journey to transform his life. And in 2019, he took up a series of physical challenges and he left politics, written a book, taken up paddling and how we're here. So, Tom, it's really great to have you here. Give everyone a wave. You see you've got a haircut as well. You can see, see you a lockdown haircut like me. So thank you so much for being here, Tom. I really, really appreciate you being here. And our second guest is another really interesting person, Andrew Denton. And Andrew is a CEO of the Outdoor Industries Association. And that is a bit of a tongue twister. Even the acronym OIA takes a little bit of, uh, of work. It's like a Ron Burgundy's vocal warm-up in Anchorman. And Andrew has been Tom's companion for some of the physical challenges that we, we talked about uh, that happened last year. 
And Andrew's biography is actually really uh, quite extraordinary. It'll make most people jealous, I think, in our world. So he's represented, you know, the, the UK outdoor industry sector, I guess, to governments and around the world. And he does all sorts of things in that space. But he's also an accomplished ski mountaineer, mountain biker. He's done Ironman triathl triathlons for GB. And he's done some first ascents in Patagonia, the Arctic and Antarctica. And he's got a broad background of ad outdoor adventures around the world. So that was really interesting, doing a bit of research uh, as well on him. It was quite incredible. So, um, Andrew, it's really great to have you here as well. Give everyone a wave. You've got looking. Hi, Many thanks. No hair, no hair problems here. Shave once yeah, a week. Yeah, no. yeah, absolutely. I think we're all sharing something in common here, but I will let the audience uh, decide. They can judge. Um, some people have got it on the sides and some people not so much on the top. But anyway, we move on. Um, so, yeah, I think, Andrew, I'm, I'm just going to start with you, if that's OK. So it seemed uh, that the Outdoor Industry Association really did a lot of work and led the charge, you know, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, trying to, you know, steer that sort of, well, this precious, I suppose, industry, this precious community of people involved in the outdoors through the lockdown. What do you think has been your, like, biggest success in these last uh, few, well, weeks and months, I guess we could call them? Um, I, I think one of the things that maybe helped... Uh some of the watchers and, and, and the guys, you know, the paddlers watching and listening is the work we did in the early days and British canoeing were part of that, Ben Seal and, and, and David Joy and the team there. Right at the beginning, there was uncertainty of whether you'd be allowed out the house. So if you were living in Spain or France and the other countries in lockdown, uh, you didn't have any options. You know, you were lucky if you got in your garden. And we had a press release. We got a lot of people together, including British canoeing, did a lot of really hard lobbying. And Boris read out from that press release the importance for mental health, physical health, to allow people outdoor exercise. Mm. And so your ability to be outside through COVID is in part thanks to British Canoeing and British Mountaineering, OIA, and, and the other bodies that we all represent together. But that lobbying was hard, and it was by no means on the cards that you were definitely going to have it. If you lived in other countries, you could easily have been just stuck inside for the entire 14 weeks. So... I'd say from our, my perspective personally and maybe the listeners was probably one of the most important things I'm proud of. No, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? Because this, this pandemic and the lockdown has kind of a lot of people's perspectives have changed, right? You know, there's opportunities to be outside in those spaces. Even just your local park has probably been very, you know, for a lot of people, they've probably felt very grateful and, and lucky. And not everyone has even managed to have that. But for some people who get the chance just to go out the back backyard and go into the mountains or whatever, oh man, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's been an amazing time for them. And so I've got to say, thank you for letting us. Someone I work with um, has a little uh, cottage in the. Pyrenees. So he works for an outdoor brand, but he's right. He's the very final one, right up high in the Pyrenees on the end, right next to one of the big famous GRs. And because of the law in Spain, he put his foot outside his house once and nearly got arrested by the local Bobby. Fourteen weeks he's been locked up in there, living that isolated. Mm -hmm. So it's a politics thing, not a science thing in that environment. But the fact that our guys did get to go outside, I think it's maintained a lot of sanity for a lot of people. I agree with that. Mm. yeah it's been it's oh, I just I can yeah I think it's really uh just a, just strange isn't it it's strange and if you think about it it gets even stranger the longer you think about it the longer you, the more strange it is so no I'm, I'm really I'm really grateful that we've had you know when we have had the chance to get out so and I, I was going to come to you then Tom as well because you know 
you've had this amazing story and I, I hope we'll get to talk a little bit more about the, the kind of backstory. But um, what kind of got you into politics? What got you started? Because I guess most people will know you as a, as a politician, uh, first and foremost. That's how I knew you. I was like, wow, he's a, he's a canoeist as well. <laughs> super cool. But, you know, that's, you know, how do people get into being doing such a tough job, you know? I'm a relatively new canoeist and very much a novice without exactly <laughs> currently in negotiations to try and get one. But, uh, but politics, I, I started very young. Um, we talked about life and the world around us around the family uh, tea table um and i just started young because i wanted to change the world and um and then at the age of uh 53 uh, or 52 at the time i decided that's enough i need to do something different um so it was a it was a sort of mission in life really for me i start i i had i got a job as i was essentially the photocopy kid at labor headquarters when i was 17 years old um before I went to college uh, and then I worked for the trade union movement and got involved in trying to save the road car plant in the 90s um, and then stood for parliament 20 years ago did a lot of things hope hopefully did some good uh, got healthy and decided I wanted to do good in some other area rather than in Westminster and so that that, that political life uh, you know I always think you know for me it's quite I, I, I probably people will know I might have quite mixed feelings about politicians, but I always make sure I recognise whoever they are that they're human beings, and it must be incredibly it is incredibly tough world to live in. Is is it is is it like that, or you know, are you yeah, just a really yeah. tough guy? Yeah, because it's kind of like uh, it's not just a job; it's a vocation, uh, and poli you, you know, politicians as a as a class always get dismissed, but. People always find they build good relations with the individual politicians. Um, but for me, what it was, uh, there was a, you know, I was in a high profile, high pressure, um, you know, long hours job, and I was getting physically unhealthy. I, over the years, I piled on the pounds, you know, till I got to 22 stone. Uh, and it got to the point where it was sort of, uh, you know, impairing my cognitive ability. I was tired all the time. Um, so I, I needed to sort of do things beyond my political life. And that's why I'm so pleased Andrew is on this um, this event tonight as well, because Andrew was very a very significant part of my health journey. Uh, when I, I saw him one evening, I basically said, look, I, I'm the Shadow Culture, Media and Sport Secretary. I, I fancy writing an outdoors policy for... Um, for the Labour Party and the opposition, can you help me? And he very politely said, um, I've had so many politicians say that to me over the years. I've written them and they've ignored me. He didn't quite say, look at the size of you, but he sort of said, walk the talk, why don't you walk the walk? And within about half an hour flat, he'd convinced me to, to walk up Snowdon uh, with, with Ordnance Survey to go canoeing with Ben Seal and British Canoeing. And the other one was an outdoor swim, which actually got cancelled, but it's still somewhere on the list of things it's I've still got. still hanging over you, is it? You're still waiting for the uh, water to get warm enough. slightly worried about it, yeah. Um, and uh, I got slightly distracted by a, a civil war in the Labour Party for the day I was supposed to do <laughs> that. Um, but, the, um, but we did it. Uh, and he made me challenge myself a little bit. Um, and, of course... When you experience the outdoors, I mean, the, when I got into that canoe, we did it on the canals in the Black Country. Um, it was such a beautiful day. It was a joyous event. It was a team event. It was we were working with each other. 
you were seeing nature in a way you don't normally see. You you were being physically active. You know, you've got the sun on your skin. My boy and his little pals joined us a little way along the way. It's the first time they'd ever been canoeing. I, I, I mean, it, it, these are sort of little milestones in life. And when you're a busy, when you're a busy sort of office bound, uh, you, you know, politician, um, and you don't get outdoors, it's quite a, you know, there's a sort of psychological barrier to to trying these things out for the first time. It, you know, you need the right kit, you need the right safety procedures, you need to, you know, there's a, a, to have a sort of um, support from Andrew who was encouraging and sort of understanding that there are those kind of barriers was really important to me. And then Ben was just fantastic. And of course, then Ben immediately lobbies me on behalf of uh, British canoeists. Yeah, well, you've got to expect that the water someone's going to lobby you at some point. But it helps you understand, it helps you understand just how many hundreds of thousands of other people could enjoy Britain's waterways if we opened them up a bit. So mm. I feel very, very privileged to have uh, been on the journey I've been on. And I, I feel like I've still got to give things back to people who've really helped me. And it's really interesting you're talking about this. You know, people, you're talking about going on a canal in a black country, right? Yeah. You know, for, for a lot of people, this is like, this isn't outdoors. This is like some sort of urban, you know. But actually, I really believe some of these places, they're not, they are quite, they are natural, you know, they're, they're a bit, they're not quite natural, let's be clear, but they are still something special about them because being on the water, that diff- you mentioned the difference in perspective. We've talked about this in other episodes. There is something special, even if you're on a canal, on a boat with, you know, some buddies and the sun's out and you might have, a, you know, some some people having those first experiences together. That's, that's special, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I now go out on the River Seven with my with my friend John, and um, you know you go. We, I mean, we, we you know we are like old fellas talking about the world. Uh, but you know, you see a blue, fi- you see a kingfisher, sort of streak of blue light fly across. Yeah, we talked about kingfishers. Yeah, yeah amazing, I mean, it, it's just a privilege, you know. It's and it's even if you live out in the country, unless you actually get close, you don't you don't you don't normally spot these things. We, we went, we put in um, was 10, 15K up, up the um, Black Country Canal Trail. And it was, you know, middle of nowhere, really, an outdoor centre. And we had um, a bunch of nurses from the local mind charity there with us, hadn't we? Good and when we, when we exited, it was right in the heart of the ball ring. We had the mayor of Birmingham there. And it's like, if you'd driven there or got there in any other way, it would have been a tedious journey. But actually, yeah. we had three or four fabulous hours, as you say, in, you yeah. know, in this magical landscape. And then bang, you're right in the heart of the city. And one, yeah. one of the lobbying bits of work I'm currently doing at the moment, unfortunately not to Tom because he's not in the same position, but is to try and uh, persuade government that it's not just bike to work, that active travel to work. Well, if yeah. you can buy a bike to go to work, why can't you buy a canoe to go to work? Why can't yeah. I buy a running kit or, or an e-scooter or anything else that, you know, in this post-COVID world when we want to get people off public transport, get them fitter, you know, tackle obesity and diabetes – you know, active travel to work makes as much sense to me. So for your paddlers out there, we're lobbying for you to be able to walk into a shop and get your 35% off a, a, a canoe as the same way as you can at the moment off a bike. But either way on that side of it, it was that that journey was just magical, wasn't it? It, it, it was magical. And, and you know what? What we actually went through was the heart of a conurbation uh, that very often people immediately drive into traffic when they go to work in the morning. I mean, if everyone from the black country who works in the ball rig in Birmingham could get a canoe into work every morning, 
I mean, that would be trans- a transformational experience. It was the most civilizing thing I could think of. Uh, so your policy is right, Andrew, and I hope we can persuade the political parties, my old party and the current one in government. Um, Post-COVID, you know, there's an opportunity for us to really think about travel. You look at what the cities are doing with cycle lanes now. Um, mm. You know, why they could do the same with the canal routes and the rivers, couldn't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's the difference? I mean, at the moment, bizarre, it's getting a bit political, but at the moment you could walk into a Go Outdoors or a Snow and Rock or Decathlon and you could buy a, a Gore-Tex jacket, a Polar Fleece, uh, some Merino, a, a high-vis jacket. If you were cycling in and you could get that all on the bike-to-work scheme, uh, salary sacrifice, 30 40% off. But if you bought exactly the same stuff and you said you were going to walk to work or canoe to work or run to work or e-scoot to work, all that would be full price, sir. And there's, there's something slightly, slightly daft about that when we're trying to get people physically active, get them off public transport, get them commuting. So we shall see. But these things move, move slowly until they move fast. So you never know. I have to get Tom to give me a, an in with some of his old colleagues. Well, that's what's interesting right now, isn't it? Because we are seeing actually that headspace has opened up and, you know, cycle lanes. Why not? Mm. You know, and it, I actually... You know, I'm I'm interested in you know I think incremental change is great, but I think you can have big changes can happen very very quickly for 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 unex you know on the back of unexpected unexpected turns of events, and and I think we're alive in those times right now, and and I think we need them. So, Andrew, I was just going to come back a little bit as well. So you obviously have been you know ski mountaineering and all that. When did you get involved in? You obviously ended up in the outdoor industry. When did you get involved? In, when did you get started in the outdoors and how did you come into that was it through scouts like so many people or was it some other direction um no not so much i went to university i, I wanted to be a zookeeper when i was a little boy so i always oh, loved yeah. animals and the outdoors and stuff like that and we used to go out with the parents and so i did environmental science uh, an awful long time ago when it was um you know not not so popular in the 80s um and as part of doing, reading environmental science i just got into climbing a mountaineering there at university um, and then I went to work initially teaching environmental science in an outdoor centre. So I kind of used the environmental outdoor ed side, but that sort of got me into there. And from there, I got into the outdoor industry. And then I spent the, the bulk of my life, really. I, I uh, owned, uh, I was the modern sort of founder and the owner of the brand Mountain Equipment. So Mountain Equipment makes down sleeping bags, Gore-Tex jackets, stuff like that. Um, it's a, you know quite a well-respected international worldwide brand so I owned that for 20 years and that was sort of the, the bulk of my work um, but it's a great industry to be in you know there's a lot of passionate people in it you know we, we do it for a job you know you, you've got to run a business but uh, most people in it just love the outdoors in some way shape or form. Mm. Well I think we're all I mean I, you know I, I can't speak for all canoeists kayakers stand up paddle waters but I guess there's something about this community come slightly different directions but there's all something about that outdoors that peace that something about those places even if you're like white water kayaker or you know competitive paddler mm-hmm. or whatever there's always always come back to sort of core thing about that sort of just being outdoors is nice and, and being on the water so it's interesting it's real, a massive overlap i mean i know it anecdotally and i know it from the research we did so i was commissioned by um so I'll have to say this without Tom listening, by David Cameron, hush my mouth, <laughs> when Tom was in our position. So I'd rather it was him. But anyway, um, and I, I wrote a piece um, with, with government um, on a national outdoor recreation strategy that, that we were struggling to get through, which is where Tom came in to help us really push that through with opposition help, which was brilliant. But um, it showed that mountain biking, camping, 
um, hill walking and canoeing. There was a massive overlap. So the number of paddlers that own a mountain bike or the number of mountaineers that have done any paddling, you know, it, it's not siloed. People are active outdoor people. They love the outdoors. They've got an appreciation for the environment. And if it's throwing it down, you might go paddling. If it's sunny, you might go rock climbing. If it's in the middle, you might get the mountain bike out. And I think Sport England historically were really, really siloed. They give some money to British canoeing to get more canoeists or British mountaineers to get more climbers. And, and the research that we did showed that that's just simply not the case. And that, in part, changed the whole way government measure uh, physical sport and activity now. So now they have something called active lives. So in the past, if you went paddling at a weekend, and then did five other sports during the week, but you hadn't done enough paddling to qualify, then you wouldn't be counted as a statistic. And that's how British Canoeing gets some of their funding. That's now changed. And if you paddle on a, on a Sunday, but then you do park run on a Saturday morning and you pop down the climbing wall midweek and you commute on your mountain bike, then they'll add up those different active hours and, you, and you're included in the active life survey. Uh, so that concept of being an overall active outdoor person is, and, and particularly in the outdoors, I mean, you, you must be the same, even as a, gold medal incredibly elite of the most elite you probably owned a mountain bike or beat done some hill walking as a bowl yeah i'll fill up my mountain bike for sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i just want to while we're here just want to welcome everybody again to british canoe and paddlecast welcome everyone again to who's listening again or perhaps listening in on the podcast we've got tom watson former labor party and now a, a, a paddler himself and andrew denton uh, CEO of the Outdoor Industry Association joining us and we're talking a little bit about all sorts of things so far so it's really uh, really interesting we've just get we've got a few comments a bit of love coming in so Claire is saying how when uh, they went paddling with you Tom on that journey they loved it and they've got into paddling as well on the back of that journey they took with you so that's oh, Claire that's a wonderful thing to say thank you and what a great day it was the the uh, the regional development team were fantastic to us that day I'm so appreciative of them yeah I heard a bit of a shout out to the West Midlands development team as well they've obviously done a, done a good job there and you know this is one of the cool things you know it's interesting because we've all had days on the river you know, I've had hundreds and hundreds of days and thousands of days on the river, but there's the odd one, you know, and some of those at the very start, you remember really clear because they kind of, you know, they cut right through and remember them really well. And it, I can see the way your eyes light up and those people talking about their first or their, you know, some of their experience on that day. It's really heartwarming. So I'm, I'm grateful for everyone who's commenting. If you've got any questions, please uh, drop them in the comments and we'll see if we can get round to them as well. Um, yeah, Tom, hold on, I'm going to get this guy up here there. Tom. John Tuwin has said, yeah, he's, hi, Tom, my daughter as a teacher at King's Charles sends her regards. The school the school is now at the girls' Kidderminster High School, which my wife attended a few years ago. So John's That's been fun. on quite a few of these shows. So thank you, John, for watching. Good to hear from you, John. That's my old school, John. Uh, in fact, one of my nephews currently goes there. They're a lot stricter than they were when I was there. I think you get a detention for wearing your tie undone these days, which Oof. is not, not, not what it was like in 1982. <laughs> so, Tom, I was going to ask you, uh, if, you would, if you would be comfortable uh, to, to talk a little bit about this diagnosis that you had for diabetes yeah. or, or that kind of process of that wake-up call, because... Yeah. You know, it's remarkable. You said, I was trying to work. I don't do stones. I kind of work in kilos. Yeah. I know that 22 stones is quite big. And I'm seeing you now, you look fit as a fiddle. And yeah, I think well, 22 stones, you would have carried that 
you know that would be that would have been something something must have happened and, and maybe can share a bit about that journey and that 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 change yeah i know but i'll try and relate it to the outdoors as well um i, I mean it, in many senses it's an everyman story you, you, you know for 30 years i cut on pounds over time and then got really really big um and then i was in a busy high profile job thought i was the big i am quelled the inner voice i was in denial about my health condition so you know i became overweight obese hypertension type 2 diabetes uh and thought i had what was a chronic illness that would only lead my health to deteriorate over time and didn't want to deal with it until you know a very quiet voice that said you don't want to die became a very loud voice and at that point i read a lot of science and literature and I changed my nutrition, I changed my lifestyle and found enough sort of emotional, spiritual bandwidth to begin to increase my activity levels very slowly at first. Um, so if you'd have asked me when I started the journey that, you know, a couple of years later I would be in a canoe with British canoeing, I, I, I was too much. You know, I, physically I would have had difficulty doing it Uh but psychologically, the idea of being 22 stone and getting a, on a canoe in a black country canal was a million miles away from where I could have got to. Um, and, I mean, that's why I'm so grateful to everyone who helped me along the way because there's a you have to sort of conquer your own sort of inner voice, really. Um, and how I did it, I just cut out refined sugar in my diet. I cut down carbs. And then as I got fitter and healthier with better sleep, I just increased my activity levels. Um, so I remember getting on a bike for the first time in London. I went, I went on the, uh, I, I crossed Lambeth Bridge, which is a very flat bridge. But even the incline on the bridge, I got to the top of the bridge and it, I, I was exhausted. You know, I was out of breath, uh, and I just worked. But you know, a year later, I'm doing a, I'm doing the London bike ride with uh, with Andrew and a big team of people, the uh, charity. So. I, I guess, and I wrote the book about it because what I really wanted to, I just wanted to be very honest about my own story because for me, what I, what I now know and I didn't then, there were three and a half million people or thereabouts in Britain with type 2 diabetes. Uh, and and re research in the last five or 10 years shows that with nutritional change and leading a slightly more active life, um, about half of us could put themselves into remission, literally rid themselves of their medication and then all the complications that these illnesses have. Um, so there's not just an individual's interest in that, millions of people you know, having an individual interest in that. There's a taxpayer interest because obviously we we spend 10% of the NHS budget on treating type 2 diabetes alone. It's, wow, it's an yeah. enormous amount of money. It's £10 billion a year. And, of course, when you talk to Andrew, you just realise that a slight reprofiling of budgets there from health treatment to preventative health, with social prescribing that sends people up Snowden rather than medicalizes them or puts them in a canoe so they can paddle. You know, it's not just their physical health that could be transformed, their well-being could be transformed. And so obvious and such a no-brainer, but so difficult to politically move the dial so that you get the paradigm shift you were talking about earlier, actually. Rather than doing things incrementally, genuinely shifting national focus on to mm. getting the healthy the, the nation healthy again could have dr a dramatic impact on all our lives i mean we talked last week's guest uh one of them you know i they they, they prescribe time in the outdoors for mental health uh issues yeah. you know and it's like 
again, this is always we're so focused, you know, and people will know who know me know this. We know we're we're totally dealing with the symptoms of everything. We're not actually getting right down to the bottom of what's going on here. And there's a there's a real there's some real questions. But I was really struck by something you said earlier about the mental and spiritual bandwidth. And I think yeah. this word spirit is something that is a bit weird and people kind of flinch a little bit, maybe in, in, in this country, or maybe it's just in the English language, maybe it's in the modern times. People, you know, what does that word mean? But I was kind of wanting to pick you up because it's something that's come around and around and we've talked about it on almost every episode. It's something I'm interested in it. What did that mean when you talked about that bandwidth there, please? For me, I, I, it's definitely, you know, when people, if they meditate or they, they practice mindfulness, that notion of being in the moment, um, you, you know, the moment of putting your, your foot on the pinnacle of Snowden or, you know, the moment you're on the River Severn and you see a kingfisher flashing by or you hear the water going through some rapids or you hear the wind in the trees as you're passing by, you you cannot fail to, you know, you're, you're literally, you know, you're in your immediate environment. And when you're in a city and you've got a busy job and you're online and your phone's ringing and there's a million people at your door with a conga line of misery, um, there's a whole, you know, there's, sort of, there's just a whole load of fuzzy thoughts in your head. Um, so I, I think that, I think the combination of being outdoors and physically active I think it just brings you into a presence that um, until you re-experience it, because obviously when you're kids, you experience it all the time. Until you re-experience it in adulthood, you, you, it's something you've, you've forgotten that you've lost. Uh, but once you get it again, you don't want to lose it because it's very fulfilling. Mm. Andrew, what about you? What about, yeah, because this this sort of fulfillment thing, you know, where you've come in again, this, this, this course that you charted through, um, where does this sort of mind you know well call it mindfulness where does this kind of this 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 connection with the moment does that something that you identify with yeah i think absolutely and i guess in in multiple ways really um by by no means at the level you compete at etienne but you know competing as a as an athlete or doing sort of first descent on something hard and um it's and it's extraordinary in the moment or, you know, the paddlers out there that are climbers will know if you're leading a trad route. I got into climbing at uni because I was stressed out working. And uh, the, when you're when you're leading a traditional route and you're above the last bit of pro and your legs trembling, the last thing on your mind is if you're going to get your essay in that night. Yeah. So it, it's absolutely that moment of clarity where suddenly it puts everything in total perspective. And, and certainly for me now, if I was standing at the top of something steep and about to drop into a you know, a significant couloir and, you know, potentially with a with a fall that was going to be pretty messy. If you, you know, you can't be thinking about the fall. You're only thinking about the turn. You're only thinking about your edge. And I guess for you or some of the listeners, you know, you're thinking about where you're making that turn in the white water. And and if you get it wrong, you're going to get sucked back into the stopper that potentially is going to have a nasty ramification. So it's, it's that in the moment. But then at the other end, if you like, and the reason I do most of my work now is in the non-profit sector. And although I own sort of this elite mountain brand and was all about first descent and super hard stuff, now I'm just super inspired that work like people like the Dr. William Bird has been doing um, about natural connections and about mental health in the outdoors. It's just really incredible statistics like taking kids who are in tower hamlets and tough urban environments and just simply planting trees outside their house reduces domestic violence. I mean, staggering numbers that 
that we are designed to be a, a natural animal, to live and move in some way, shape or form in a natural environment. And I think there's an element of, of me and, and some of this industry that we're, you know, white middle class comfortably off outdoors. That's the style of the industry historically. But that this alienation that some some people and some some groups have gone from the natural environment into an urban environment is causing all sorts of challenges. Um, we've got people that, that work in town hamlets and some of the tough areas of, uh, of you know, major conurbations. And children are just not engaged with nature. They're not engaged with green spaces. They're not given that time or flexibility to play and be outside in the natural environment. And it's a genuine illness. So blue spaces, green spaces, whatever they might be, in terms of that connection, you don't. the flow doesn't need to be a grade five river or a, you know, a 50 degree cool water. The flow can just be playing outdoors, just swinging in a tree, playing outside. And it's, it's absolutely vital, particularly for young people, to try and get that reconnection with nature particularly about bringing it back just for a moment to the, the last 14 weeks we've all been through. Um, the, the mental health aspects that we've all seen through an enforced lockdown, the you know, physical stuff that Thomas has been talking about, you know, the ONS released this morning that 70% of the mortality has had either type 2 diabetes or obesity or a related comorbidity. So for, for years, people have been talking about this, but I think COVID has really emphasised that you know, historically it's been possible to perhaps live with those comorbidities, but it's really hit very, very badly. And a lot of people are like, wow, if, if somebody had told me this, and I think we've failed that we haven't told them that before, that you're potentially living with a lethal disease. And so I think now perhaps this will emphasize that need to just move outdoors, to have some sort of physical activity in life, not, not elite, but just to be active. Our bodies are designed to move. It's health, isn't it? I think this is one of the strange things, amazing things that's happening now is that health has been become foregrounded in a way that's never, well, you know, I mean, I can't say never, I don't know, but, you know, health now, a, a concept of individual health, what that means, a concept of community, it's a social health, you know, and yeah. it's not just necessarily physical health, it's mental health, it's community it. connection, it's nature connection, it's actually yeah. all these things, it's, it's shaken things up in incredible, incredible ways. And when we took Tom on um, the first of the, the big challenges, which which he was incredible, bearing in mind he had very little time to train for it, which was Snowden, that, that's four hours up and two hours down. And if we'd asked him to walk for six hours on the treadmill, there's no way. But we did it with about 35 people. We had cross-party support. We had a liberal. We had some conservatives. We had civil servants. We had chief exec of ordnance survey maps. We had YHA, camping a caravan. And everyone together kind of, you got that social lift, didn't you, Tom, from that? Oh, it's and fantastic. Um, one of my conservative opponents, actually, the MP for Wire Forest, Mark, uh, came. Yeah. And we were like a house on fire. Uh, uh, but the difficulty for me is I was chatting to everyone until about two-thirds of the way up. And, you know, we were rotating. But the last third, I, I basically couldn't speak. So... <laughs> People are trying to talk to me, and I sort of run out. I just run out of energy. So, uh, but it was great. It, I mean, and it was such a try. It was a personal triumph for me, uh, but for the group, it was a brilliant experience for the group as well, wasn't it? It was such good people. We're and you can do that every yeah. weekend, can't you? You can do that every weekend. That's the great thing about it. I mean, that's you just want people to sort of find new habits and feel confident that they can just get out of where they are and enjoy the world around them. I think that social thing, Etienne, is so important. We took um, Jane Ellison, who's a, a, an ex-colleague of Tom's, previous uh, health minister on, on the other side, but health minister, 
And uh, we took her out hill walking in uh, David Rutley's constituency in the High Peak um, near Macclesfield. And um, it, it, we didn't set this up, but my God, it couldn't have worked better because we just got to the top of this little peak and this bunch of ramblers, and there wasn't one of them less than 70, all yeah. sort of walked into, all, and, uh, and they were chatting away to them. And they were all widows or widowers living on their own, 70, 80. And, and the, the joy and the companionship they found in this walking group that got them out um, was second to none, you know, infinitely better than Darby and Jonas sitting around watching neighbours or whatever they might have been doing in another, another life. Um, and Jane was like, I cannot believe this. This is, we need to be invested in this. This is such an important part of, of active ageing. Um, and that's, again, that's social health, as you said. Yeah, something there, the quality of life. And I think we're kind of veering towards something that we've often touched upon here as well. And this is the sort of thing that's, you know, kind of preoccupying uh, parts of British canoeing uh, before the COVID-19 descended. You know, we there's some comments in the chat of, you know, talking about this. We, we're facing challenges around access and, you know, the fact that a vast majority is seemingly off limits to a lot of people. A lot of our waterways are just not allowed. You know, you can't get on them. And Tom, before you left the Labour Party, you know, you made a commitment that, you know, Labour would review the legislation around access uh, on water. And now yeah. it's like you guys aren't there anymore. But what do you think the future holds in that? Because, you know, surely now, again, things have changed. Things have changed here. Yeah, I, I think it's very doable, this. Um, I, I mean, I don't want to predict the future because, I, you know, I, I, there's nothing more excellent. No, don't predict the future. That's, that's crazy. But it does strike me that post-COVID, we are going to be talking about how people can live more fulfilling lives. Uh, and, you know, for all the canoeists I've met, they're lovely kai-darted people. They're not, they're not crazy, you, you know, petrol heads who drive at 120 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. You can definitely reach an accommodation with our angling friends. Uh, and when I realised, I mean, you know, but it took Ben Seal to give me the facts on this. Um, so little of our waterways are opened up to people who want to paddle. Uh, I, I mean, I forget what the numbers are, but it's dramatically low, isn't it? Uh, and I just want people to feel that, that you know they can get back to nature in in whatever way they choose. So I, I mean, it's a moderated conversation, but I think it's a fairness issue. Uh, and it seems to me, yeah, I, I've got a little thing here: less than four percent of rivers. Yeah, I mean that's it's such a wasted resource, isn't it? It's such a wasted resource. So I think we can get there. Uh, British Canoeing are doing a great job, uh, at sort of, uh, and Andrew uh, working with them as well, um, and talking to politicians on both sides, uh, and you know, cl cleverly making sure there's cross-party alliances being built on this. Um, you know, I hope we can get there, and it would be good if the government could do it before an election. But you, you know, because we're probably four years away from an election now. Mm. If it could be part of a post-COVID national campaign for public health, wouldn't that be a great change? And you've only got to see, you know, you could you have said that a city like Paris would elect a mayor with with a huge vote this week? One of her pledges is to take 60,000 car parking spaces away from the centre of Paris to turn them into cycle lanes. Now, that is a transformational shift for a city. We could do the same with our rivers, couldn't we? Uh, for people who want to paddle and it just takes leadership and inspiration um, and we've got an opportunity now I think you said that at the start Etienne yeah. well, yeah, uh, go on Mark one, go on Andrew sorry 
one of the possible routes to this um, is doing some work with the Glover Report. So, you know, some of the people that are listening in, perhaps who are involved in the political side of this will know the Glover Report, which was about engagement with national parks and how we engage with them and the opportunities. And some of the natural England and DEFRA are working really closely with. Um, but uh, there's a comment come up from Peter, Peter Askey, I think it was, um, about peak paddlers. It, the comment's gone now, so I can't read it. But um, the we'll bring Sarah, it back up, here, don't you? back up there. Yeah. So Sarah Fowler. Um, so Pete Astley's, yeah, if, if everyone can see that. So I, I'm guessing it Paddle Peak, it's, it must be the peaks. Um, and obviously, it is Joe went there reading it through. Um, so Sarah Fowler, um, Peter, she's the chief exec of the Peak Park, and Sarah is on the Glover Report delivery um, board working out of DEFRA and Natural England, which, which I'm involved with as well. And we're trying to make the Glover Report part of the heart. Of, of the COVID recovery, we, we've got a, a lobby ask um, that in some way, shape or form, this engagement with the natural environment in a physically active way can become part of the heart of, of the recovery. But for all, the, you know, it's, it's, it's why, you know, we, know, we know it lasts six minutes if it's outside and 72 hours that it's inside. We know in a breeze that it's blown away. We know that if you're fit, active, not obese and not suffering from a comorbidity, you're, you can shrug it off like a cold. There's so many reasons to be active outdoors in a, in a post-COVID environment. You know, we know, you know, camping staycation phenomena tie that in as well because you don't want to get on a pressurised aircraft and fly around the world. There's so many reasons why being active outdoors could be part of the um, of the recovery process. So we're pressuring the way to do that rather than this sort of vague ephemeral, oh, can we get more people outdoors, is can we work with the Glover Report recommendations, which were, you know, highly, highly endorsed and uh, on both sides of the house to do something with it. So, Pete, um, do you can find me online. If you just Google Andrew Denton Outdoors, you can track me down and contact me. Absolutely no problem at all. And British Canoe will give you my details. I will take your case up directly with Sarah Fowler and Pete Park um, and get in touch with me on that. But there might be an opportunity to put the outdoors and the Glover Report at the heart of the COVID recovery. And, and that's possibly our, our way into making this happen. Well, that's what's interesting to me is that, again, it's, these are the times we're in so many things suddenly seemed to me to make sense you know a lot of a lot of things that we you know sort of are connecting a lot of people are making these connections between things that perhaps seemed a little bit you know like cycle lanes or like walking to work or you know yeah. all these different things are connecting up now and there's a potential if someone kind of sees the connection have a vision it, you know, we can go backwards or we can change things and do something slightly different, which is actually really sensible. And I think that the, the gap between what's sensible and what we can do now is actually very small. And we can just, yeah. you know, I think we can do it. It's, it's almost like I was talking to somebody about this the other day. It's like COVID and, and the, the situation, the tragedy is, has pressurized the system. And, and some stuff that, that passionate people have been lobbying for, so whether it's climate change and, and not traveling as much, but using working from home and online and Zoom, um, or cycle lanes or active travel or you know, fighting obesity, fighting sugar, fighting diabetes, all those things that small groups have been saying have been important. The, the pressurization of the system, the kettling via COVID, they said, oh, my God, they were right all that time. If only we'd all been lean and fit and non-diabetic and actively traveling and, and Zooming, this wouldn't have hit us anywhere near as much as it has been here. It's like we, we almost want to say, told you so. Now, obviously, no one doesn't. And it's, there's been so much tragedy. But it has shown 
that a lot of the smaller pressure groups that were being ignored. And I was doing something about climate change today with frustration because you see how world governments can move when they've given priority. And the bottom line is probably millions more will die of climate change ramifications will ever die of COVID. And yet we, the, what we spend on climate change, it's like, oh, yeah, well, that's somebody else's vote down the line. Whereas COVID, oh, my God, that might affect my vote. Next time I'll spend 330 billion on it in week one. So mm. there is a frustration there. But let's hope that we get some politicians like this, like I believe Tom and some of his colleagues have been, that have got a slightly long... You know, they, we've been banding around this New Deal term. You know, FDR was a man that had foresight. He wasn't just in it for the votes of tomorrow. He was a man who was a leader that was building a generational change post-Second World War. The only person ever to get four terms. You know, please, God, don't let uh, Trump get four terms. <laughs> Pardon me. But um, you know what, and Tom knows what I mean. It really, we need leadership. We need foresight. And we need people that are going to invest in children. That, that COVID generation, my six-year-old, is just missed six months of school. Where, what can we build in for her out of this? How can we learn from it? What's your thoughts on that, Tom? I know you you've left the lay, you know you're you're you've left those political uh, things yeah. a little bit behind, but you can't take the politics out of you. Surely you must be you, very, you, very. You can, and I'm des- I'm desperately trying to get it out of me. But obviously, I know how the system works. But you look actually looking at it from the outside a little bit. Um, I mean, I was obviously on a very human level concerned for Boris. You know, when Boris Johnson, I mean, you know, he could have died. He was very seriously ill. Um, And I don't think you have an experience like that in life without coming through it uh, a different person. Mm. Um, I I hope um, that he will put that experience to good use. I mean, you know, he had a a life-threatening experience with with a child on the way. Um, And people tell he says that he's trying to get fit. Uh, imagine if he deployed his considerable um, mind to looking at the very heart of food production, looking at the transport system, looking at sport and recreation, looking at public health, um, you know, pulling the assets of the nation into a central point where we can sort of dissolve some of these problems with access to the waterways or, you know, allowing people to have active uh, travel to work. Um, you, you know, I, I know so many people. If if they could afford an e-bike, they would. They would. They, they, they're not wedded to their car. They're not. They're not addicted to their car. It's the only way they can get to work. But if you give mm. them an e-bike so they can get to work without getting sweaty, they'll do that for for nine months of that out of twelve. Um, all these things are possible if you have political leadership and political will. Uh, and I, I, I would like to have faith in him as a human being that he will address these things. Uh, and funnily enough. All politicians are now able to sort of shed their kind of traditions and their and their sort of you know the parameters in their own parties. Um, I mean, when you've got a conservative government paying the wages of about thirteen million people in the private sector, and, and yeah. possibly taking an equity stake in you know companies like British Airways or Jaguar and Land Rover in the in the near future, they can think out of the box as well. They've got they've actually got more sort of bandwidth to sort of man- manoeuvre. Uh, and a national crusade for public health, I think, could unite the nation and and just give people a real sense of you know who they are as a, as individuals and as as a nation. There, if we do that right, and that's to me again. I think you know you, we're talking. It's interesting, Andrew. You know, we're talking about de- health in the broadest definition. You know, it's mental health. You know, we talked about spiritual health. It's something about like a deeper sort of health. You know, and it's a health of planet. 
is a health of communities, and they are all coming back to me. It seems that connection to nature, to the outdoors, you know, this is something really, to me, people are going to be have been experienced. There's a, there's a great hope here, and I, I suppose it's interesting that, well, Tom, you spoke very passionately about, you know, the benefits to you and how it kind of flipped in your life. And, and Andrew, you're talking, you know, again, how there's ways of facilitating this. And, and I think that's really kind of, you know, really remarkable. Well, really, you know, there's, there's an opportunity. Absolutely. We're in a, we're yeah. in a period of change. I, I think, you know, everyone's been saying it, but we've, we've had that chance to put the world on pause. And, you know, that it's important to to remember the lockdown's been a different experience and you know we do work with with play england and and with some of the deprived communities and i was on something about equity during lockdown and at the time me and my little girl we, we were right in the country we were we were by a lake she was skimming scones and playing and, and i was on a video and the comparison with that and some of the kids that were locked down in you know some of the central urban conurbations was frightening mm -hmm. but it, you were, at least some have had a positive experience during lockdown they've put the world on pause they've they've gone out for their exercise they've been working with moments spent more family time and perhaps they've had that chance to re-engage with the outdoors because gyms and leisure centers were closed they couldn't go to work their exercise it was their it was their form of sanity so bearing in mind that it's not been like that for everybody um it was, certainly would be great if we can take that moment that that life going on pause and take some of it, you know, and I can't remember, there was a, there was a poll you got the other day, but I was in 99% of people wanted to take some of the lessons and they'd learn from this and, and move forward. And, and certainly politically, I've, I've been really inspired by the PM in Norway, the PM in uh, New Zealand, interestingly, both of whom are women, but have both said, I've really learned from this. I've got some regrets. I would have done something differently. I really hope we can learn from this and move forward. Um, and, and certainly, you know, Tom's new 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 boss, Sakir, I think has come over very well in that. I'm not saying which side I'm, I'm voting for either way, but I think the fact that he tried to take that moment and say, look, let's just pause here. Let's just not bicker about everything. Thank you for giving me this in advance, Mr. Prime Minister. I'd agree with this. I'd ask you about that. It feels like there's a, there's a possible moment before we all start slagging each off and fill that chamber again with booze and catcalls that everyone can press that pause button and say, what, what good can we take from these 14 weeks? What can we learn? What regrets have we got? And what opportunities have we got? And that, that would be a lovely moment for all of us, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think it would indeed. And we have to wait and see. And, and, and gents, I, I'm, I'm afraid we're coming towards the end of, of the time here. And I'm just so grateful for you being here. Um, I just wonder if any of you got any, you know, like final reflections, Tom or Andrew, you know, just to, to you wanted to something that's set, you know, sparked off in this conversation and, and then we'll start to wrap it up. What do you reckon? Go for it, Tom. Etienne, firstly, thanks for giving me the time to, tonight and to, to stimulate a good discussion. And thank you to British Canoeing, who are a fabulous organisation. Um, they're changing lives and giving joy. Uh, and just to say to people, I know, you know, occasionally you may be asked by British Canoeing to write to your MP on access. It is worth it. Uh, it is worth it. Um, and um, for all those people that really helped me, if you're interested in my journey, I wrote a book called uh, Downsizing about it. Uh, and British Canoeing are in there. Uh, but I hope to be associated with you all uh, in, in the months and years ahead because you've given me great, uh, great cause for hope. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Tom, very, very much indeed. And what about you, Andrew? Any final thoughts? 
Oh, I think big, big thanks out to, to you, Etienne, and, and the team, Ben, Ben and David, David Joy and Ben Seal putting this together. I think British canoeing, you know, it, it's a loveless uh, task sometimes being an NGB. You get a lot of complaints. Uh, you get, they work tirelessly. They really do. Um, although Ben needs some work on his haircut, having watched him before this <laughs> in the green. <laughs> get some razors to it. Um, but, you know, they're a fantastic organisation. We really enjoy working with the IA as well. And, and you know, don't forget, you know, work with uh, right across, you know, it, it's not just about paddling, it's about being active outdoors. Uh, I, I'd say as a, as a final thing with, with Tom in the room, uh, I've given his book now, I think three, four, five of them I've given out to friends. Um, and I was just speaking to a friend today who's gone from 26 stone to 18 stone this year, having got Tom's book. I mean, that is staggering. That's, you know, that's more than the, the weight of my wife been lost in a year almost. It's yeah. unbelievable. And I've, a number of people, when they read Tom's book, it does more for them than, than anything that any Jamie Oliver or, or Lean and Mean book. So if you've got a, I, I'm assuming everyone listening to this is a lean, mean, fit paddler. But if you've got a friend in the family that struggled with their weights or, or trying something, you, you couldn't buy a better book for inspiring people to make that change. And uh, the guy I spoke to today, um, Mark, and he actually said that I could mention him. So Mark Essex is the head of strategy at KPMG. We're talking a, an Uber job there in Canary Wharf. And he said to me today, um, he said, Andrew, I think you probably, you and Tom's book saved my life, quite literally. He was 26 stone, diabetic, one of the most stressful jobs in the country. So, yeah, my takeaway from this would be, other than enjoy paddling, if you know a friend that's in need of health, buy them Thomas book because it could save their life. I've got one other thing to say. If anyone's got a second-hand canoe for sale, will they email me? <laughs> oh, there'll be plenty out there. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> there'll be hundreds. There'll be hundreds. So, gents, look, I just wanted to say thank you. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, this book sounds amazing. You know, it's really cool to get that sort of, you know, inspiration. And and again, you know, this is one of the cool things about canoeing and kayaking, paddleboarding. You know, our sport is a really amazing sport. It's so uh, people, anybody can do it. You, you work it out. Everyone's rubbish when you first start. You learn it and it just gets you out into this amazing world, seeing things in a different way. And uh, I hopefully will get to do it for the rest of my life and i hope i do and, and I'm, I'm so you know i'm so grateful for you guys being here tonight i'm so grateful for all the listeners and all the watchers all the people who've been along for the whole of the series really grateful for the guys working behind the scenes at british canoeing to you know set it all up and I'm, i think you know i hope people have enjoyed it basically and i hope it's brought a little bit of life uh, you know, and a little bit of uh, fun and enjoyment in into your into this lockdown and look We've got something ahead of us now. There we are in times of great change, and I uh, believe we all have a little role to play. And uh, thank you, Tom and Andrew, for being with us tonight. I want to say goodbye to everybody. Good luck. Stay safe. Stay Let's well. do something good. And uh, I don't know when I'll see you again, but hopefully some of you see you soon. All right.